going to share out of Esther this morning. So when was the last time you read the book of Esther? Oh, that's funny. Cool. Okay. I think it's funny too. Nobody reads Esther. Um, so we're doing a thing at our church right now, um, and we didn't make it up, but we're doing what's called a year of biblical literacy. And what we found is that um, right now, kind of where things are at in our culture, we have a biblically illiterate culture that is now using the Bible to critique and attack a biblically illiterate church. Um, finding that Christians don't actually know the Bible. We don't read it anymore. And if we do, we kind of read it, yeah, yeah, I know this, I know the story, you know, kind of read the cliff notes, something like that. A lot of us are doing podcast Christianity, maybe reading a book on Christian living. And I guess maybe even just a part of this morning is an encouragement to get back to a biblical rootedness, to be a people of the book, be a people of the word, people that read the Bible firsthand, to know it for themselves, but more than anything else, in order to be shaped by it, to be shaped by the story of God. Because I think what we're seeing is that we are a people, just like all people, who are shaped by story. And right now the church is probably being shaped more by our cultural narrative story than by the story of God, the story of redemption, the story of hope, the story of great meaning, a story of great power and redemption. And so I, I want to talk to us about that this morning, about coming home to this story and an identity as the people of God. Um, so I recently talked through the book of Esther, and I was shocked by some things I had never before noticed in the book. And since you haven't read it, right, so I'll just kind of tell you what's going on in it. But uh, I think many people, we do this with a Bible. We do whitewashed versions of the Bible. And so people like Gideon are like these incredible heroes, you know, who we should emulate their life. Samson, like never mind the fact that he like has multiple prostitutes and he breaks all of the things that go on with his Nazarite vow. He's a hero. Um, <clears throat> so we whitewash or flannel graph the uh, Bible stories. And uh, I'll say this, Esther is a beautifully written story. It almost reads like a play. Uh, it's a tale of sensuality and brutality, something we might find on like MTV, VH1, you know, like behind the music, uh, keeping up with the Kardashians. I mean, it's like, it's pretty gnarly. Uh, but then at the same time, it's almost told like a classic play, um, something Greek or maybe Shakespearean. You have subtle excuse me, <clears throat> subtle Esther, um, and just her character development. You have resolute Mordecai. You have the fumbling drunk buffoon of a king, King Ahasuerus. And then you have the menacing villain, Haman the Agagite. And he's descended from the great enemies of Israel. And you find out this is this ancient conflict that's going on, and it all culminates in the book of Esther. Um, so it's a fascinating book, and since you haven't read it, this is your homework, Calvary Chapel. Go home tonight or this week, read through the book, and then discuss it with a friend, discuss it with your spouse, discuss it with your family, because uh, I'm not going to have time to go into all the minutiae and nuances of this book. But let me start by saying it's a crazy book to find in the Bible, okay? So let's, why? Why is it a crazy book to find in the Bible? Well, Esther, the heroine, her name is not Jewish. And she's often put up as this Jewish princess, um, you know, who is in the land of Persia and is, you know, chosen because of her purity and her beauty and her godliness. Actually, she's named after a Babylonian fertility goddess. 
Uh, Esther, after being taken into the king's harem, is chosen to take part in a kind of beauty pageant to see who will become the next queen. The test is not limited to, but includes spending a whole night having sex with the king. Esther is picked to be queen then because of her beauty. It says specifically her beauty, her beautiful body, and basically her ability to outperform in bed any of the other virgins from the harem. She is not chosen because of her purity, inner beauty, distinct Jewishness, or godliness. Mordecai, the hero of the story, who acts as Esther's father, he doesn't fare much better. His name is a derivative of Marduk, a very violent high God in Babylon. And he is the one who puts Esther up to the whole thing. Join the king's harem. Put yourself out there, Esther. Be a sex toy for this king. Hide your Jewishness. Don't tell anybody who you are. Go under the radar and you know, be there and live life in the palace. He puts her up to this whole thing. Now, in the end, and with a strange turn of events, uh, again, we don't have time to go into this. These two Jews orchestrate the overthrowing and killing of all the enemies of the Jews in the Persian Empire. It's bloody. It's horrific. Uh, there's a lot of impaling going on in this book. Um, some of your translations, I think if you read ESV, it will say they were hung on the gallows. That's not actually what it says. They are impaled. Uh, Haman himself it's like this super ironic story. He builds this stake that's 75 feet high in order to impale Mordecai on it, and he ends up getting impaled on it himself by order of the king. Anyway, there's a lot of impaling going on, and it's brutal and bloody and gnarly. And are you disturbed yet, church? Why is this in the Bible? God, what in the world? What are you doing? The characters are not portrayed as God-fearing, covenant-witnessing, law-keeping Jews. Quite the opposite. They are nothing like their contemporaries, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Have you ever been to a Daniel study? You know, dare to be a Daniel. You know, when everyone else is bowing to the king, you know, you pay homage to Yahweh alone. Be brave, be bold, stand your ground, right? And one person compared Daniel and his crew to the temperament of New Yorkers. Right, Daniel and his friends go into Babylonian captivity, and they're like, listen, this is how I talk. This is what I eat. This is the God I worship. This is the way I live. You don't like it? Burn me. <laughs> Mordecai and Esther are more like freshman college students on, on spring break, right? They're down for whatever. Like, yeah, we want to do it all. We want to do everything that everybody else, we just want the experience. And they are just so adapted to the culture of Persia. They're compromised. There's no saltiness. There's no distinction. Now, in this book, it's fascinating. There is no mention of Yahweh. There is no mention of God, just the generic term. There is no mention of Torah, which is the law of Moses. There's no mention of temple prayer. There are no visions, no prophetic denunciations or encouragements as we find in the prophets. There's no miraculous interventions. It's a wonder what this book is doing in the Bible. Now, God not being mentioned is on purpose by the anonymous author. 
And it's almost as if the author is saying to us, reader, look at all the ways that Yahweh is so very present and at work behind the scenes. The providence of God is all over this book. Now, one of the reasons why I think Esther is so powerful for today and why I wanted to share it with you is because I believe that the days of Esther and them living in exile and God's absence and the lack of uh, miraculous intervention is a lot like the days that we're living in. We are not familiar with experiencing divine intervention in the way the Bible often describes it, right? I mean, anybody go to the beach this weekend? Did anybody see a parting of any seas? Or, you know, like, was there any manna on the shore of the beach? You know, there's just these things that are just so, like, normal to the biblical writers. Oh, yeah, well, then the angel of the Lord showed up, and I talked to him, and this happened, and this happened, and we're like, God, would you just do that for me? We're more like Esther. We're we're living in a, a secular age where we even doubt the spiritual world. Not only that, but our culture and church culture, like Esther, are far from a biblical identity and and rootedness. We're much more like Esther than we are like Daniel. Daniel went into Babylonian captivity after the revival under King Josiah. There was a height of, of spiritual awakening in the kingdom of Judah right before the Babylonian captivity happened. And so Daniel and his friends kind of go into exile on the back end of this revival. Esther grows up in exile. She never knows temple. She never knows Torah teaching. She doesn't know kosher keeping. And I think that this is a lot like what we're facing as the church right now. Many of us are far removed from a biblical rootedness, a Christian identity, a sense of mission, a sense of belonging to the kingdom of God. And because we are, we are removed from the story, as I said earlier, we are more subscribed to the cultural narrative than the biblical narrative. And I can't help but seeing this story as a story written for the church in this era of history. And and this is the way I see it. It seems to me that Esther is a story about a girl who was so far from home, so removed from the morality of God's people, from a distinctness, a holiness, whatever you want to call it, an identity with the people of God who nevertheless found her way home. And church, I I believe with all my heart, the answer to the world's needs at this moment is for the church to be who she has been redeemed to be. And it's time to come home. It's time to stop living out the American cultural narrative, whatever that is now. It's not really the white picket fence, you know, two and a half kids and all that anymore. But there's just these different versions of the good life that each of us are subscribing to. And yet every time they fail us, there's this death inside. They evade us. And all the while, God is offering us to live for his kingdom to seek it first, 
to invest in this identity, this incredible hope, this incredible meaning that God has purchased with his blood to bring us into. And so this morning, God is inviting us home. And this might sound like a guilt sermon. It's not. It is a beautiful invitation to be who God has redeemed us to be. So, without further ado, we're going to jump into the middle of this story. And what's going on here in chapter 4 is that the Jews are currently living under Persian rule. Unknowingly, the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, some of your translations say Xerxes, that's his Greek name, he made a Jew his wife. She looks like a Persian, she acts like a Persian, she must be a Persian. No, nope, she's a Jew. Um, unknowingly, the king of Persia also, oh, excuse me, simultaneously, rather, he has made Haman, who is a descendant of Agag, uh, who was the king of the Amalekites. He's one of his great-grandchildren. He has made him his uh, vizier or second ruler in the empire. And as chapter three closes, uh, what's happened is there's been an edict that has been sealed by the king, and it's been sent out into the whole empire. And the edict says that on a certain day, the Jews in the empire are to be wiped out. And the way that this has come about is this man, Haman, has been given this royal honor before all, and everybody in the kingdom is to bow to him. But what happens is every time he goes out of the gate, Mordecai will not bow to him. And it happens again and again and again. And so friends that are... Friends of Mordecai say, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Why are you doing this? And he says, I'm a Jew. But this sets this whole plot in motion that Haman is so angered by Mordecai's lack of honoring him and paying him respect that he determines that he is not only going to impale Mordecai on a 70-foot stake, but he's actually going to annihilate all of the Jews in the empire. And he gets the approval of the king. He, you know, tells the story in a certain way that he gets the king's approval. Oh, you know, we're going to make a lot of money from this. I'll put it into the treasuries. It's going to be great. So the king signs it, and it goes into law. And according to the law of the Persians, the law cannot be undone. Now, we don't know exactly why Mordecai doesn't bow. Um, The writer of Esther is very... um, It just really never comes down like, okay, and Esther, what she did in chapter three is really good, right? And this thing's really bad. Uh, The reader is supposed to determine the positive or what is positive and what are negative actions in the story. So we don't know why Mordecai doesn't bow in the sense of, is it because he knows how ruthless and evil this man is? And so he's not paying him honor. You know, he's, he's standing up for righteousness and justice. Well, way to go, Mordecai. Is it because of this ancient conflict between Israel and the Amalekites? Like, I'm not going to bow to some Amalekite. Is it simply because of the fact that he is a Jew in the sense of national pride? Or is he being loyal to Yahweh? We don't know. It doesn't say. And the only reason he gives when asked is, I'm a Jew. There's no other details with it. I'm a Jew. 
So whatever the nuances behind this, it sets Haman on this trajectory, not only to kill Mordecai, but all the Jews in the Persian empire. And so we read in verse one, we finally got to the Bible. Well done, everybody. Okay, here we go. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews with, highlight this, fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, up till now in the story, Mordecai comes across as a compromised Jew at best. And we really don't know the state, excuse me, of the other Jews living in Susa. Here is one detail that we do know, given the context of the book of Esther. The Jews at this time were given the right to return to the land of Israel, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And yet Mordecai, Esther, and many other Jews chose to stay in a foreign land land. So that's really the only detail we know. So we don't really know where the Jews are spiritually on a faith loyalty to Yahweh spectrum, but here's a really interesting thing. However they're living their lives, however compromised they are, however much they look like Persians, when tragedy strikes, Mordecai and the people of God turn to mourning, fasting, weeping, and wailing. Of course, if you know anything about the history of the Jews, this way of grieving, mourning, is is very customary for the Jews. They're a very expressive people. If you've ever been to the land of Israel and you've ever been to the uh, Western Wall there um, where the temple foundation stones still are, you've seen this. Very expressive in in their grief. But the author isn't just saying, look, they were sad. This is a terrible thing, and so everybody's sad and depressed. No, the author uses very specific words to describe what happened. And it's interesting because these exact words were actually used somewhere else in the Bible. They were written 400 to 500 years earlier by the prophet Joel. Let me just read to you from Joel 2, starting in verse 11. It says, The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your clothes. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind blessing. That's the kind of God this is. He's a God that will turn in a moment if we turn, and he'll not just like, okay, fine, truce. He'll bless us, 
grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet then in Zion and declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the people, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room in the brighter chamber. Let the priest who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Now, in this scene from the prophet Joel, judgment is at the door. It's coming, and the idea is nothing can stop it. God is bringing judgment. His army stands at the door, and God is bringing justice upon the nation of Judah because they were evil. They did unrighteousness like all the other nations. They did injustice like all the other nations. When they were supposed to be distinct, when they were supposed to be a kingdom of, the, of righteousness, of justice, of shalom, no, they just copied all the nations around them. They colluded with idols and with the powers that be. And yet God says, even in that state, if you return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, I will return to you with grace, with compassion. I will give my abounding or overflowing love to you. Now, here's a question. Could it be that these exiled Jews are reading and applying the book of Joel to their situation. It's coming. Judgment is coming. It's at the door. Nothing can stop the law of the kings of Persia. And so when they see this wave coming, what do they do? They pull out the scroll of Joel and they return to the Lord with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. You know, the book of Daniel Daniel tells us that in exile, he's reading the scroll of Jeremiah. So it's, it's not crazy to think that the Jews had the scrolls of the prophets and that they would be reading them and they would be you know, using these. So let's say for argument's sake that Mordecai had maybe a spiritual awakening. He's got this opportunity to bow to Haman or not to you know, just kind of go with the flow, which is what everybody else is doing. I'm just going like, to give in to the powers that be play the game, play the political game. And he just has this moment where he's like, I'm going to stand for something. Like, this isn't what I believe. This isn't who I really am. And he stands. Maybe he doesn't even know why he stands. He stands. And it's like this spiritual awakening of to who he really is. Well, let's say that that is Mordecai's spiritual awakening. I believe then that this act of repentance, of weeping, fasting, and mourning, that it is Mordecai and the people of God returning or turning back to God. We can't know for sure, but I think that these terms are used by the author intentionally to get us clued into what is really happening at this time with the Jews, and that is, I believe, a spiritual revival, repentance through fasting, weeping, and mourning. Now, <clears throat> fasting is something that's really lost on our culture. It's the last time somebody did a fast for spiritual reasons. Okay, a few of you, right? This is a very common thing in Judaism, very common thing in early Christianity. And what we do for fasting, it's not just, you know, to like get our body healthy again. You know, you go on like the cayenne, lemon juice, honey, drink thing. You know, oh, I'm just getting healthy. That's not what the Jews were worried about or early Christians were worried about. Like, oh, they were doing this way back then. 
the idea of fasting is what you're doing is that you are identifying the world is broken. The world is filled with evil, injustice, unrighteousness, and God is grieved by these things. You wake up to the state of the world. You wake up to the state of your own spiritual bankruptcy, and you say, I am actually going to bring my physical body in line with what I have recognized about the world and the way that God feels about the world, that God is grieved over the brokenness, the injustice, the unrighteousness of the world. And that's what fasting was. It was a way that we bring our whole body into line with this state of brokenness. And so the Jews begin to do this. They, they unplug from normal life, right? They stop eating to give time to really think about who they are. How did we get here? What were the habits that we formed along the way that got us where we are so far away from home? What are the ways in which we have compromised and lost our way? This is what fasting does. I unplug from all the pleasures. I unplug from all the routine things I do in my life. I unplug from social media. Now, I'm not like into this like neo, not, or neo, um, what am I even trying to say here? <laughs> the, the term evades me at the moment. Um, but but uh, uh, mona- there it is, a neo-monasticism, where it's like, okay, church, we got to unplug from all the technology, and we just got to go, you know, like be hermits and just be with the Bible and prayer and in community alone. That's not what I'm saying. But let me ask you this. What is your daily rhythm? Because I know for me and my generation, the last thing I do before bed is that I would scroll through Instagram. I would check my Twitter. I would binge watch something on Netflix. You know the first thing I did when I woke up in the morning? Because my phone is right next to me at my bed. It's my alarm. I open up my phone. I look at my Instagram. Oh, who liked this? What's going on in the world? What's going on on Twitter? What, who says what? And I should be informed, all this kind of stuff. And I am just, these are my habits. These are my rhythms. I'm just kind of going with the flow of things rather than living a life of counterformation. And so <clears throat> a fast is simply a way to unplug from, and recognize the ways that I am being formed. And to say, where have I gone wrong? How do I need to get back? So I'm going to refuse myself food. I'm going to refuse myself drink. I'm going to refuse myself these pleasures, these distractions, if you will. And I'm going to think about deep things about like who I am, what I really, really desire underneath all my other desires, who I want to be, and even bigger and beyond all that, who God has made me to be. Am I practicing and forming habits to become that person that God has created me, that God has redeemed me to be? Or am I just being formed like everyone else? Fasting is a way to do counterformation, or it's the way counterformation begins. And so that's what these Jews, I believe, begin to do. Now, Esther is clueless to what is going on. It's really interesting. I don't know if it's because she is just so removed from <clears throat> Jewish culture. 
it's almost like she doesn't even recognize what the Jews are doing. She sends Mordecai a new pair of clothes. Like, hey, I don't know what happened to you. Maybe you got like in a street fight or something, but here's a new pair of clothes. Go clean yourself up and, you know, <clears throat> take care of yourself. He sends back word, no, 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 you don't understand what's going on. Now, of course, Esther doesn't understand what's going on because she lives in the palace. The palace, what is a palace? I mean, that's, that's the high life, right? It's a place of security. It's a place of protection. It's a place of comfort and ease. Esther is removed. She is far away from the fight. She's far away from any threat. She's far away from any danger of death. And so now this dialogue begins between Esther and Mordecai as Esther begins to understand what's really happening. So it says Mordecai told Esther's servant everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay in, excuse me, to the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her, go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for your people. Esther responds, and her response is completely rational, given the situation. This is what she says. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king without, in the inner court without being summoned, without being invited by the king, there is but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter and spares their lives. But it's been 30 days since the king has even invited me around. So she's like, I, I don't have an end. You think I do. But my royal position really doesn't mean anything. If I approach the king uninvited, it could mean losing my life. Now, it says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do you not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, of course, this is the climax and turning point in the story. And the question is, will Esther join in the suffering of her people? Will she take up her true identity or insulate herself from suffering, from fear and possible death? And so this creates a moment of crisis in her life. What, what will she do? Mordecai, his warning is so interesting to me. He tells her, in essence, no palace walls, amount of luxury, insulation, and protection can keep you from the wave that is coming. Esther, you cannot escape this threat. And then he gives a very interesting warning. If you don't do something, you and your father's family will perish. Now he already told her, look, if the Jews are going to be wiped out, you're going to be wiped out too. What's he saying here? Why does he put it like this? Does anybody else think that's kind of strange? Like you're going to die. And just by the way, you're going to die. Like he's not saying it twice. That doesn't make any sense. So what is he saying? And so it seems to me I'm going to go into, you know, a little sanctified imagination. Um, if you hate me and you think I'm a 
heretic. We can talk afterwards. I'll be outside. Uh, So it seems to me that Mordecai is saying this to Esther. Esther, look, you think that you're being faced with one situation and you're going to try to avoid death, but actually you are between the the threat of death and death. A physical death or a death of your true self. You and your father's family, your father's household. You are on the verge of a loss of identity with the people of God. So what is Mordecai saying in essence? Esther, listen to me. There are worse things in life than dying. Specifically, to lose who you really are to neglect and reject that God has made you for himself, that God has made you to glorify him, to be part of his people and his kingdom work, that God has made you to be in relationship with him. To kill the image of God in you will be spiritual death. To say this identity I don't need to do anything about it. I don't need to make a choice. Spiritual death is far worse than physical death or danger. It reminds me of what the book of Hebrews says about Moses. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. Rather than to enjoy, listen, the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt because he saw the reward. What is worse than physical death? According to Jesus, our king, It is to bury your talent in the ground. It is to gain the whole world and yet not be rich toward God. It is to insulate your life from all fear, threat, pain, and yet lose your own soul. C.S. Lewis once said, if you want to protect yourself, do this. Lock your heart away, protect it. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. I think many of us have this idea that we can just coast in our Christianity and we'll be okay. I'll just insulate my life with a kind of culturally conditioned Christianity. I'll play the game. I'll come to church. I'll do the things. But it's like doing a diet when actually what you need is a lifestyle change. I mean, you guys have any, anybody in this room like that? You've done all the diets and you just like, you, you, die, you know, you binge, you purge, you binge, you purge, you binge, you purge, right? 
How are you doing with that? What you need is a lifestyle change. And I feel like so much of, of the church, we, we do that. We just do the up and down, up and down. And so much of it is based out of fear. We're fearful of what might happen if we really sell out to the kingdom of God. Either way, like, well, what will happen to all my friends? What will happen to my opportunities? I see the ways things seem to be going in the culture. This doesn't seem very safe to identify as a Christian and to put all my eggs in that basket. And yet at the same time, I don't really know this God and I don't really know, I don't really trust the church and the church seems like they're trying to control me and you know, all these kind of things. So we're just kind of like in the middle. So we just do apathetic Christianity. Now, people have been talking for some time about the end of the Christian era. The post-Christian era is what we're living in. And they say the church will become obsolete, not by annihilation, or at least not a physical snuffing out, but by slowly fading away. The church will be colonized more and more by the culture around us, having our desires and identity shaped by culture and not by the word of God, not by the spirit of God, not by a vision of the kingdom of God. I said this in the beginning, but I think that the hope for the world until the king returns is that the church will be who she has been redeemed to be. I think that is the answer to be the light of the world. I mean, isn't that interesting that Jesus speaks to this just motley crew of people and he doesn't say, the temple is the light of the world. The Torah is the light of the world. The Pharisees are the light of the world. The Essenes are the light of the world. The Sadducees, Rome is the light of the world. What does he say? You people. You insignificant, lowly, little people are the light of the world. You lowly, insignificant, little people are the salt of the earth. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Michael Goheen in his book, Introducing Christian Mission Today, says the church of the West often fails to live up to its high calling because it is hamstrung by a low spiritual state of the church, by a lukewarm love of Christ, a sickly worldliness, and a lack of vital prayer. What are the reasons, he asks? Self-satisfaction that comes from comfort. Comfort. Compromise with capitalism. And lastly, accommodation to the consumeristic spirit of our age. Church, I think that we are at a crisis moment. There is a threat, similar to the people of God in the book of Esther. We are in danger, not of physical death, but of spiritual annihilation. Look at the churches around Orange County at this time, where is the next generation? Have we passed on the faith? Have we discipled and raised up? 
have we represented the kingdom of God? If the wave hasn't hit, it can't be far off. And I think some of you are holding on to a semblance of Christianity, but it's mostly covered up in cultural conditioning. So I'm going to say a few offensive things, and again, we can talk afterwards if you want. Um, So some of you, like Esther, in the sense that your identity with the people of God is hanging by a thread, some of you have hitched your wagon to Trump, to Jerry Falwell Jr. and the Christian Conservative Party. You've colluded with the powers that be. You say, oh, look, this is the hope for the kingdom of God. Yeah, well, you know what? What is it going to profit to gain Capitol Hill and yet lose the gospel? Jerry Falwell Jr. does not speak for the kingdom of God. Jesus does, though. He does. And he makes it very clear what that kingdom is to be about, the priorities, the habits, the desires of that kingdom. He spells it all all out there in the Sermon on the Mount, which should be, it should be the sermon of the church. The thing that we come back to again and again to recalibrate our lives. Are we Jesus' people? Are we kingdom people? For others, your Christianity is hanging by a thread, but it, all it takes is the right person, the right relationship, the right career opportunity to come to offer you something better, a more fixed identity, something stable, something to really sink your teeth into, something to believe in, something to fight for, something to sacrifice for, something to really commit your life to, and you're gone. Can I offer a suggestion? If that's you, you have never understood the gospel. This is the gospel in essence, the good news. God has returned in the person of Jesus Christ to make all things new. The king has been seated on his throne. All powers and authorities are being made subject to him, and we are waiting for the day when he will make all things new. He will remove the curse. He will restore what is broken, and everything sad will come untrue. And yes, Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again so you and I can be part of that kingdom, so that we can come under the king under his apprenticeship, and we can live out the kingdom of God now in our midst until he comes again. There is a vision for your life. There's something to sink your teeth into. There is an identity so much bigger than you and so much more rooted than the American narrative that only goes back a couple hundred years. We're talking back to the beginning of time. You've been made in the image of God. You've been made for the glory of God, and your heart will be restless until it rests in him. Church, come home. Now, I know that some of you are like, I think I am home. Great. Awesome. You're home. You, you, you're just tracking with everything that I'm saying. Great. Be disciplers. Intercede for those who are lost, who are astray. Be bridges to bring them back home. But for whoever you are, if this is you, you're hitching your you know, story to the, the political narrative, either on the right or on the left. You're hanging around the church and you know, kind of apathetic in your Christianity, but you're just waiting for a better story, a better narrative. If that's you, you're one step away from your spiritual funeral. And this might be the last season of your faith if you don't choose today. 
to rejoin the people of God, to re-engage with what it means that Jesus is Lord, he's king, and he's also Messiah, to give your allegiance to Jesus alone and to his kingdom first and foremost, to trust in Jesus alone for salvation, for joy and hope, and to follow Jesus with your whole heart and to seek first the kingdom of God, to be on mission with God, to see his kingdom come, to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, church, this is scary as hell. I am not, like in of myself, I can't do this. You can't do this all on our own, but this is this incredible truth. You know, the early church, what were they? They were a spirit-filled community, and God turned the world upside down through them. And here's the truth. It might be scary as hell, but God has made us for a fight. He has made us for the real fight, not against people, but against the forces of darkness that seek to lull us to sleep, to draw us into apathy and spiritual lethargy, to combat these false narratives of human flourishing. The rest of the world and culture around us remains in the grip of slavery to sin, to brokenness, hopelessness, and meaninglessness. And we have the good news. We have the good news that comes with life-transforming power, with meaning, with purpose. I don't know if this is true for you, but this is true for me. When my life is difficult, when my life is busy, I take the path of least resistance in some of the most important areas of my life. Amen? Anybody else? No? You're all liars. Okay, cool. Um, I have three kids, nine, eight, five, and I love my children. Parenting is hard. Uh, I pastor a small church, and people are difficult. Uh, people are dramatic, and life is, life is hard. It really is. And then just, there's all my insecurities and my insufficiencies and all these things. And so, so many times in my life, I can take the path, path of least resistance. And I just have noticed in my life, this is where I'm at right now, that I was using social media as a way to disconnect from responsibility. And what I was doing is I was tapping into other people's feet and saying, actually, I want to be here. And I know I'm stuck with these really difficult, ugly, and annoying people, but I actually belong with that really cool in-group over there. Those people that are normal and got everything put together, I'm one of them. I belong with those people. And social media was like a way for me to do that. So I am disconnecting from my responsibility, and I'm breeding this incredible discontentment with my life and my situation. All the while... Who am I becoming? What are these habits that I am giving into creating in me? Who are they making me? Where am I going? And my wife and I, we recently had a great conversation together about that. Who are we? Who do we want to be? What are our deepest desires? And are we laying out habits and practices that will cultivate who we want to be? who God has called us to be, who our children need us to be, who the next generation of the church need us to be. 
You know, something that's really sad is that I, I went up and I helped plant a church up in Santa Rosa 14 years ago with my brother-in-law. It was really interesting because my parents' generation is all but missing, uh, for the most part, from the church in, in the area that I'm in. And, and I look at that, and I know that they're, they're, it, that's a nuanced situation. What has happened, there's been fallout and adultery in the churches and embezzlement. It's a mess. But I just look at that as just a fail for the kingdom of God. These people left the church and they weren't able to disciple the next generation. And you have this huge vacuum of presence for the kingdom of God in the area that we're in. I live in one of the most liberal parts of the nation, the most liberal part of the most liberal state in the union. Yeah, come do ministry in Santa Rosa with us. Um, So who are we becoming? The practices of the priorities of our life, what will they amount to? And dad, if you finish that car that you've been working on, great. Good for you. Go drive it fast. What about your kid who needs his father? who needs someone who can, he can actually tell the truth to and the things that he's struggling with and the way that he's being bullied at school or being pressured and this or that. And that's just one example of the way that we disconnect and we use hobbies to disconnect from actual responsibility to cultivate the image of God in us. I need to finish my sermon, so I'm going to move on. And so, in moving on, I will quote the great prophet Neil Young. And I will preface it by saying, for the people of God, it is better to burn out than to fade away. Church, it is time to re-engage and to give ourselves for the kingdom of God. Jesus told a parable. There was a man who was a pearl merchant, and he found one pearl of great price, and he sold everything he had to possess, to own, to have that one pearl. There was a man who found treasure in a field, and over the joy of it, he went and sold everything he had, and he purchased that field in order to have that treasure. The kingdom of God is that pearl. The kingdom of God is that treasure. It is worth it to give everything to the kingdom of God. And I am not talking about a false spirituality that says, oh, you know, you, do, you read your Bible, and you pray, and you do spirituality. I'm talking about being human with other humans. I'm talking about the God of righteousness, justice, and shalom. I'm talking about the God who is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, the God of reconciliation, the God of relationship, the God of apprenticeship, the God of discipleship. That's whose image we have been made in. And that is what we are called to as the people of God to give ourselves to invest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, if we do this, he'll take care of us. He'll take care of these cares and these worries. So the question is, will we insulate ourselves 
Will we just take the path of least resistance? For some of you, it's social media. For some of you, it's binge watching Netflix. For some of you, it's relationships. For some of you, it's career. For some of you, it's family. Just all these distractions, right, that insulate ourselves, to busy ourselves, to distract ourselves. Or will we join our king and his people in the mission of God to the world, though it will cost us everything? Well, Esther chooses to die with the people of God. And I think that is the call for us this morning. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now, I've been speaking to you guys as a, as a group, as a whole, more so, but I want to I point out that Esther here, it's the first time in the narrative that she takes initiative, and she begins to command people and direct people, and it's through Esther's own spiritual renewal, awakening, that it comes to the people around her. So isn't it easy to look out and say, oh man, the church needs to get it together. Man, what's going on with Christianity? Anybody read that article about Joshua Harris? He kissed dating goodbye and a lot of other things as well, unfortunately, right? You're like, goodness, man, what's going on? Like deconstructing your faith, your marriage, all of these things. Why am I talking about Joshua Harris? Because it's so easy to point out Joshua Harris and be like, oh, what's wrong with that guy? And not look at our own selves, it's easy to look at the church and look at all the problems of the church collectively, but you, how is God calling you to fast, to weep, to mourn, to unplug and actually get alone by yourself and say, who am I becoming? What priority does God have in my life? What priority does the kingdom of God have in my life? to get alone and to fast and mourn over your own state, often this brings about renewal for others. I know my dad's story, the way that the Lord worked in his life is that he came to Christ and him and a few friends just begin to pray for their community. Their friends, they were part of the surf culture in Huntington Beach. And he tells a story where they just prayed and prayed and prayed and literally one by one, like 70 people out of his friend group came to faith in Jesus Christ, joined this community in this Bible study that they were all a part of. But it first took the initiative of one, saying, I'm going to get by myself. I'm going to do business with God. I'm going to make things right. I'm going to begin to pursue God and prioritize my spiritual health with God. So Esther does that. And this is what I guess I'm trying to say. We, like Esther, need to await to the dire situation of our own spiritual lethargy. Our own lethargic spiritual state cannot long withstand the onslaught of our godless, antichrist culture. If we are not committed to Jesus, to his kingdom, if we don't have a vision of our life that's that big, If it's not the desire behind and underneath all desires, we too will experience a clash of worlds and a loss of our own true selves. No person can long withstand the ambivalence and apathy or complacency, like that state, right? Or in Jesus' words, no one can serve two 
masters. Esther recognized a serious threat of what was coming, and she enters into a three-day period of grieving, mourning, and weeping, asking all the people of God to join her. This is what will produce in her a transformation of character, a bold and renewed identity with the people of God. She goes from living in fear, blending in with the Persians, hiding her name, to boldly and cunningly facing the enemy and proclaiming her name and place among the people of God. But it only comes through a death. Fasting is a way that we die to self, we die to pleasure, we die to distraction. We die to self-reliance. We die to our addiction to amusement. We die to our numbness to reality. We die to our apathy to the decrepit state of our spiritual health. And I guess one main message of Esther seems to be that personal renewal only comes from a death to self. And so church, it's time to die. <laughs> is really what I'm trying to say, I guess, this morning. Diedrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Jesus calls a person, he bids them come and die. Come and die, that you might find life. Anyone who seeks to save his life will lose it. Anyone who seeks to insulate, protect themselves in that way will lose it. But he or she who loses their life for my sake will find it. So church, by an invitation from the Holy Spirit, come home. Find your life, who you were created to be. Find all of your desires. Find all of your pains. Find all of your angst about the world. Find all of it in Jesus. I was meeting with a friend the other day who was telling me how, you know, he went and worked with uh, Syrian refugees in France. And he couldn't believe the way that these people were being treated by the French government. And it just broke his heart. And yet... He tells me that he doesn't believe in violence in the Old Testament. He thinks that this is something that people made up about God because of their culture at the time. And he said, oh, yeah, that's actually not what's going on. See, that heart that you have for people who are disenfranchised, people who have had their lives threatened and had to flee from their home, God has a bleeding heart for those people, for the poor, for the widow, for the fatherless, for the sojourner. And even though God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he judges the wicked. He takes what is mighty, just like he does in the story of Esther, he takes Haman and he impales him on his own pole. And he takes the weak, the beggarly, the oppressed, and he sets them high. He exalts them. And this is what will take place in the kingdom of God, you guys, and this is what we're working for. Find that bleeding heart you have for people oppressed, disenfranchised people, 
you can find a great story to live that out in the narrative of Jesus and the narrative of the gospel. Do you, do you guys get what I'm saying here? The story of God is being offered to you. Find your own story in that story. Come home. There's a great, huge calling, mission, and vision to live, to live out of. So, Lord, we pray that you would do that this morning. God, we know, Lord, that we can only come home because Jesus came to earth. came and he fulfilled all righteousness, the anointed son of David. He suffered, he died, he was buried, and he rose again so that all might come under him, come under his kingship, come under his blood, and might partake of your blessing of the kingdom to come. And so in the, in, in the name of Jesus and by the authority of the Holy Spirit, we're invited to come home this morning. And we know that the Father receives us with grace, with compassion, and with power to live this life out. We're not to do it alone. You've given us community, Lord. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. But Lord, I do pray that there would be a powerful coming home this morning, God. And I pray, Lord, that as we seek you, Lord, and we do begin to unplug from these things that are numbing our souls, that we would find a big, big God with big love who wants to do great and mighty things in this world, who wants to bring many sons and daughters to glory, who wants to bring his kingdom here to Costa Mesa, to Santa Ana, to Orange County through his people. So Lord, we ask that you would do all that is in your heart this morning as we come back to you. And we pray this in your name, amen.